Dale hated to lose. Worse than anything, Dale hated to get beat. Didn't happen that much. If Dale lost and it was outside of his control, he really wasn't that bad. If he got beat, case in point, 1990, 1991, 1993, Daytona 500. He cuts the tire after leading 155 laps. Derek Koch wins the race. It's a long story. He could not have been nicer. Right, right. You right. know, his PR guy came running up, leave him alone and all that. He's, you know how he sat in the car. You know, yeah. he's, you know how he sat in the car. He said, tell Weston I'll talk to him whenever he's ready. Gets out of the car. We're in victory lane. He said, you ready to talk? I said, yeah, we're talking to Derek in victory lane. He said, Derek, he said, I'm the story today. Welcome to another episode of LaTarte on Location. I'm your host, Steve LaTarte. And folks, when you spent more than 20 years of your life traveling the road, first as a NASCAR crew chief, and now as an analyst for NBC, you are bound to meet some interesting characters along the way. The goal of LaTarte on Location is to bring you closer to some of the personalities I've met. And the idea was to do it in some great locations, but this is 2020, so locations are not really an option. So my location, as it's been for all the Latard on locations all year long, is my house here in Cornelius, North Carolina. My guest today, Winston Kelly. So Winston, at home, I assume. We're over Zoom here. You're at home? I'm at home right now, but I'm back and forth between here and my office at the NASCAR Hall of Fame. And and we definitely want you to come out on location at the Hall of Fame as soon as we both can safely do so. Absolutely. And I cannot, I cannot wait. So Winston Kelly is our guest today. He's the executive director of the NASCAR Hall of Fame and a long time voice of MRN. I've heard him from Pit Roads. Winston, I've talked to a lot of people uh, with the podcast and I'm going to geek out a little bit here as a race fan. And I'm very looking forward to this. You and I have known each other for a long time, done a lot of different events together, but I've never really had the chance to just sit down and BS with you, to be honest. And, and, your voice and MRN and Barney Hall and the group of MRN, like that was my childhood. Growing up in Maine, that's how I watched races was through the radio. So this is a special day for me. Well, thanks for that. And, you know, I was the same way. Grew up listening to Universal Racing Network, uh, which was before MRN and listening to those guys like Barney, Bob Montgomery, uh, and many others. And, you know, would sit out under a tree and then, you know, went and tagged along with my dad who did some radio work as well. And, uh, that's how I listened to it and learned about NASCAR uh, and now watch you guys on TV when we're not there. So, so connect the dots, right? How, how does a Southern kid that goes to NC State, right, how does he end up working at MRN? You mentioned your dad was kind of in the radio business or in, or in the public address business. So, so help me connect the dots. Well, I went to my very first race when I was six years old, and dad was the public relations director at the Charlotte Motor Speedway. My mom took my older brother and I out of school for a week. We got all our assignments. When dad did PR for Charlotte, he'd also do PA, public address work, at many of the tracks. So he was at Daytona two, two and a half weeks. So went to the 64 Daytona 500 and fell in love with it from day one. You know, got to meet Richard Petty after the race. And every time dad would let us tag along with him, whether he was doing Atlanta or Bristol or Martinsville or Rockingham, kind of the close by races, I would go and just fell in love with NASCAR from that perspective. And after I got out of college, I realized, you know, I couldn't make a living broadcasting races back then. Now many people can, but you couldn't make a living broadcasting races. 
So I contacted a guy named Hank Schoolfield who ran the Universal Racing Network that dad worked for and started out as a statistician. Made $50 a race, no expenses, hotel room maybe most of the time in 1981. I'm like you. I just wanted to be involved in NASCAR. That led to getting to do public address at North Wilkesboro, Bristol, and a few other places. Got to be friends with Barney Hall. Uh, sent a letter to John McMullen, who ran Motor Racing Network uh, back in the early or mid 1980s, and was a gopher for him for almost two years with the desire to just be on air some. Uh, so I did that for a couple of years. Finally got a chance in '88, the latter part. Uh, to do a broadcast and didn't screw it up too bad. Uh, so they invited me back a time or two and I've uh, just hung around ever since then. I love it. I love it. For those that don't know, you know, I started sweeping the floors for Ray Abraham, basically. You mentioned the gopher. That was me. If a van had to be washed or cooler cleaned or the hauler washed, I was it. I could run. I could run and can. I challenge anybody. You want to you get into a sweeping contest, I might have you beat on square footage because I've done a lot of my day. I'd go back to it in a heartbeat. I tell you, lugging those boxes that we had to, you know, we had cables that we had to pull and lugging boxes and climbing up, you know, the, the old Richmond uh, radio booth. You had to climb up the tower, the side of the tower, and somebody'd hand you that. I mean, you know, you're climbing up a ladder, not stairs, but a ladder. And lugging that stuff around, I think they finally figured out I wanted to do it bad enough and they either had to run me off or at least hand me a microphone <laughs> once, see if I screwed it up. But just like you, I mean, I just love this sport. I love the people in it uh, and, and just been honored to be a part of it for the past 40 years. So the story goes that it was a, a fateful day at Martinsville in 1988 that you weren't supposed to be on air and all of a sudden you ended up with a microphone. That is true. And, and probably the blessing, uh, John had told me, John McMullen had said, uh, there was a doubleheader race coming up the end of October and it was going to be the modified race uh, and the Bush Series race back then. And on Saturday, they were doing a, uh, a tryout for a couple of guys in the turn. And he said, well, why don't you go down? There's a bush race then that was not on the air with us. Uh, if you want to do a few interviews and make a couple of comments, and they could stop while we were doing the, the kind of mock broadcast and say, here's what you did well, here's what you didn't do well, whether it's the turn guys that they were uh, auditioning or myself. So Sunday morning, I'm making notes. I'm going to run uh, information for Mike Joy on Pit Road and Jim Phillips. So a couple of hours before the race, John said, you think you're ready for this? I said, if I'm not now, I don't know if I ever will be. Mike got fogged in. I believe it was in Roanoke, Virginia. Uh, he had an obligation on Saturday, was planning to come in Saturday night, got fogged in the early flight Saturday and Sunday morning. He couldn't get into Martinsville. Uh, right place at the right time and uh, worked back, back stretch pits. Jim had the front straightaway. And the two cars I remember the most, one was Ricky Rudd and Larry McReynolds was the crew chief. Uh, and they ran extremely well in the first pit stall. And then Mike Alexander on the other end of pit road in Bobby Allison's car. And I went back and forth, spent so much time there. And I must have pestered poor Larry to death. But he could not have been more helpful and, uh, you know, just uh, – Still been here to ever since. That is amazing. So, so we have a lot to cover, and I want the fans to understand. And, and I think, so I knew this, but I guess I didn't absorb this. You know, you've been at MRN now for 34 years, but 
have always had, I call it, I don't want to call it a real job, but another job. MRN was always your weekend gig. It wasn't your Monday through Friday. It, it was my real, the other one was my real job. This became my golf game. Uh -huh. I, I went to work at Duke Power Company, which evolved to Duke Energy out of college and had a, a lot of different jobs there. I would say I was starting my fifth career, fifth different kind of career path at Duke. Duke was always great about giving people opportunities in other areas if you applied yourself and worked hard, not unlike anywhere in NASCAR. Uh, great company, loved working there, actually had a couple of other offers along the way to go to work for different folks in the NASCAR industry and just liked where I was and what I was doing and, you know, had gotten to an officer level and, you know, they didn't give out officer levels at a power company like some companies might, you know, so, uh, I, I, you know, I'd never had a job I disliked of all the jobs that I had there. And I never worked for but one person that was a race fan, but I always worked for people that knew you had other things in your life. And some people would go to kids soccer games and things like that. My weekend thing was, you know, going to races. And, and unless I got stuck in a situation where we had a storm that I couldn't go to the race, then, you know, I'd leave Friday night, you know, catch a plane or drive to wherever, come back Sunday night. Generally the races were early before charter flights, but we generally could get home Sunday night. I took my vacation, you know, to go to Daytona for a week or a Friday here, Friday there to do PA and the radio. So had the full-time job and this is what I did on the weekend you know, somewhere as many as 40 weekends a year. That's funny. It reminds me when I started, um, you know, the famed Rainbow Warriors, people talk about them. And what they don't realize is uh, one worked at Duke. Uh, one was a, a UPS man. Uh, one was a gym guy. Like they all had jobs. Like, you know, people forget this isn't this far ago. For me, it was like late 90s. This, yeah. this pit crew that was so renowned, they all had other careers. So it, it's crazy to think that the voice – I've been listening to cover these races so far, you know, for so much of my life, had another obligation during the week. Yeah, Mike Trower was your uh, one of your yeah. tire carriers. He was the guy from Duke. And at one time, Mike and I counted, there were about 15 people, can't name them all now, that worked at Duke that did this. You know, there was a gas man for one of the teams, uh, actually a score, one of the ladies, uh, who eventually, I believe, married Pat Trison. His wife, you know, worked in chemistry. Uh, at the plant that I was in. So at one time we counted 15 different people, Joe Klutz, who you probably remember. Oh yeah. Motorsports, a tire guy, you know, so I don't know. We just kind of, and we got to know each other from racing uh, other than from Duke just, you know, happened to be there on the weekend together. That's crazy. Well, we're going to circle back around to your early years in MRN. I got a lot of questions, but I, I think we really need to get to, uh, really, it's your background and, and the people that know you not only on the radio, the other way people know you is as the executive director of the NASCAR Hall of Fame. I remember when the ballots were out of uh, what city was going to get it right there was a, a campaign. Uh, if I want to say this right, between a few different cities, it was awarded to Charlotte. And then I remembered uh, I read in a press release um, you being announced as the executive director. What was it after so many years at Duke? What was it that gave you the confidence or whatever you needed to say, you know what, I'm going to take this jump. And, and basically now you're fully immersed in motorsports. Well, it, it took me a while to decide to accept it because being in a government job, a, a guy, the, the Hall of Fame is owned by the city of Charlotte. And while I make a decent living, 
I did take a pretty good pay cut. Uh, so it took me a little bit of time to work through all of that, but there were a few deciding factors. One, it was in Charlotte. And I had been in Charlotte several different times with Duke, and I loved this community. I loved this region. I knew the passion for the people that helped lead the effort to get it to Charlotte, whether it was the people from the banks, the people from the city, the people from the CRVA, and just the passion that we had for motorsports here. And the other thing is the people. You know, and I looked at it and thought, I'm going to get to help build a facility that honors my childhood heroes. How many, how many people grow up and work with their childhood heroes? Richard Petty, David Pearson, Junior Johnson, the Wood Brothers, Bud Moore. You just go on down the list. Those were my childhood heroes. Then the next generation of guys, the Rusty Wallaces and people like that, were more peers because they came along right around the time that I did. And to be able to build, be a part of building something that honored them and that also welcomed fans, which is how I got started. I was a fan. I was a fan first and then worked in it. And I thought, I will always look back and regret it. So making the numbers work on the salaries, I will always regret not doing this uh, given the chance to. And that's true. I look back, I, you know, I've been here 14 years as of last Friday. And it's like, I would so have, have regretted it, even with, you know, every business has challenges and up and down, ups and downs, whether it's the pandemic that we're in now, uh, but have had a lot of success, both business-wise, but the memories, you know, when I'm sitting on the rocking chair and watching races uh, and that next generation, you know, watching William Byron, 15, 18 years from now, or, you know, pick somebody that's starting in a truck series and going to the induction ceremony. It's like the memories I will never, ever be able to replace. Yeah, if anyone who's listening has never had the chance, it's a, it's a must go. So I, I remember, and I'll self-admittedly say when they announced it, you know, the first class was so amazing and the concept of a Hall of Fame, I was so supportive of. But, um, you know, guilty that when I was in my, my old job as a crew chief, you know, the tunnel vision was pretty, pretty dark, right? I didn't have a lot of time or, or I just didn't have the ability to kind of take time to appreciate all these things. I'll never forget. Um, I sat in the room and watched Mr. Hendrick be inducted. So here's someone who I've held on a pedestal, a mentor of mine, gave me my chance. I, I'm talking to you today because him and Jeff Gordon thought a 26-year-old kid should crew chief the 24 car years ago. And when I saw what it meant to him, a guy that has re received every other accolade I can think, that's when it really set in what the hall meant for the people within the sport. I think it was clear to me what it meant to the fan base because it's an amazing place and it tells great stories. But when I saw what it did to Rick Hendrick that night, that changed my whole – I don't know if it changed it. I think it opened my eyes to the hall and the value of the hall to not just the fans but the sport. And the, the reaction from the personalities, not just those who we induct, but their families, those are some of those memories. When, and I get emotional about some. I'm, I'm an emotional person. When the weekend leading into it and Mr. H is there doing some media uh, and we're standing on Glory Road where they're filming him, and he said, you know, this gave me a chance to reflect. He's just like you, tunnel vision, automotive dealerships, race teams. He said, I've never stopped and reflected on not what I've done, but who I've done it with. 
And to him, you know this, it's all about the people. It's all about the people. And he said, I took the time to reflect on the people. And then when we were standing in the Hall of Honor, the day after the induction, we have a private time with each inductee and their family to stand there and spend some time with him personally, but more importantly, to watch him there talking to his grandchildren uh, children about the car that's in there, why that one was important, the all-star car that Jeff Benign won that Martinsville race in that he'd not won the race. Maybe there wouldn't have been a Hendrick Motorsports and maybe Steve Letarte would have been somewhere else. That Those memories and, and that picture with Mr. H, who also is one of my heroes from a business standpoint, you know, I, I've told people since before we opened, there's a handful of people as you watch them when they come into this building, watch them and emulate them and their, their, the teams they work with. Mr. H and Roger Penske and Richard Petty are three at the top of those lists for different reasons, all that you can understand. And Mr. H was the chair of the effort to bring the Hall of Fame to Charlotte. So if there's anybody I felt like I want this to be good for and mm -hmm. him to be proud of what we've done. That meant a lot. Uh, you know, the stories that are told. So I, I, you know, selfishly feel connected with Jeff Gordon and Ray Abraham and Rick Hendrick and that whole generation, uh, the Mark Martins, you know, there's a, but it's, it's every class, every trip to the hall. We did some NASCAR Americas from the hall of fame uh, a year or two ago. Every time I go there, I learn more about the sport. And, and that's, I think, what I appreciate the most. Because I started in the sport at 16. I've never done anything else. I worked for Rick Hendrick for 20 years. I work for NBC now. This is all I've ever done. But, but the stories that are told, what I really appreciate about the hall is the, is the bandwidth of information that's available there, right? It's, re it's not just some cars. It's not just some trophies. It, you know, why, why, that's a museum in my mind, right? That's what a museum's for. This isn't a museum. This is the Hall of Fame. It tells the stories of the sport. Well, one of the things that we set out to do, and I feel like we've accomplished, but you're never finished with it, is if you take a diehard race fan and somebody who has grown up, whether they're a diehard race fan or somebody that has spent their career in NASCAR, that you want them to be informed, to be educated, to learn something new. Or to reflect. A lot of the race fans that come in, you know, you fill in the blank. They're from here. They want to reflect on, I went to that race, and I remember that. But you're looking for them to show them something they didn't know. And, and I thought I knew a lot going into the job, but I realized how much I could still learn and do every day. Then you take the non-race fans who may have gone with the race fans or there for another reason, and they walk out and, and – they tell us this in their surveys. I didn't come as a race fan. I came with my husband. I came with my brother. I came with this person or that person. And I learned so much. I got an appreciation from the sport. I always laugh and say, we're not just a bunch of rednecks going around in circles. <laughs> and I didn't say we weren't rednecks going in circles. And I That's not that all we are. are. <laughs> but that they see that there's so much more to it, whether it's from the business side, the competition side, the camaraderie side, and, and to be able to achieve that and what Kevin Schleicher and the exhibits team do to constantly upgrade and change out things. So if you come back, you see something different. Right. And what the operations team under Catherine Schratt does 
to make sure that the people feel special when they're there. You know, when folks at the hall ask, so if somebody comes in and they only have an hour, because you could spend eight hours there, they only have an hour, hour and a half, where do you send them? You don't tell them what you like, ask them what they're interested in. Right. If they're interested in the stories, the personalities, the interactives, send them where they're interested, not where you like. So we're, this is another Latardon location. We're talking with Winston Kelly, executive director of the NASCAR Hall of Fame, also a voice for MRN. So uh, Winston, I think it'd be remiss if I didn't talk about 2020, right? This has been a challenge for everybody. It's been a challenge for, for every industry across the country, more importantly, perhaps across the world. This is something that no one could have ever predicted. NASCAR has done a wonderful job of getting us back on track with the schedule. I'm proud to say that, that when we saw Daytona, that riveting season finale, we're going to crown a champion in 10 weeks, and it's going to be the same 10 weeks that we planned months ago. You know, bravo to NASCAR. Talk about the hall, where, where it is, where it was, how it went through the pandemic, what where you hoped for. You know, just tell us about kind of how the 2020 has treated the, the Hall of Fame. Well, we were having one of our best years from a fiscal, we're on a fiscal year from June to July. So we were about eight months in through February, you know, had another incredible class, but we were having a great year from a business standpoint. Last year, we were up 12% year over year. This year, we were tracking right at 12% up year over year, and we were ahead of budget. So the business side was going right, great. The customer service side, we were above the targets. Uh, you know, our, our net promoter score, and I won't bore you with the details, but you know, you're a numbers guy. We were over, we we're at 81.5%. Our goal was 80. If you look at the Amazons and all of the world, they're in the high, in the low 70s, low to mid 70s. Wow. So we feel like, you know, we were just hitting on all eight cylinders, if you want to use one of our terms. Everything was going well. And then things started to, uh, you know, unravel. And we decided actually the week before the shutdown, the Friday, uh, March the 13th, I will never forget this. Uh, I was in a meeting with my peers and the CRVA's executive team and, and just made the decision. And it was one of the hardest I've ever made that we need to shut down now. We don't need to wait until we're told to shut down. Mm -hmm. You need to shut down now. So we started going through that process and doing all our communication. Never in my life did I expect that we'd be sitting here the end of August and still shut down. Right. I thought we'd be talking about two, three weeks, and then you know we'd have some new safety protocols and all that stuff. Uh, it wasn't long after that uh, that our parent company, uh, the Charlotte Regional Visitors Authority, we operate the Charlotte Convention Center, Ovens Auditorium, Bojangles Coliseum. We do the back of house for Spectrum Arena and work in conjunction with the Charlotte Hornets. And we're also the destination management company of recruiting in convention. So it's not just the Hall of Fame that has approached this. So we put a group together to of returning to the workplace, because we didn't call it return to work because everybody uh, immediately went out and we've been working like this. And other than you know some facilities people who would come in occasionally, everybody's been working full-time remotely. You know, one of the things we took, we've got a tremendous education program that has 30 different modules within it. Uh, Eliza Russell and team pivoted immediately, put it online, 27 different modules, because parents were looking for things. It might be a 10-minute exercise program, or it might be a 90-minute actual 
session on how fluids work, mm -hmm. things like that. So we've been doing a lot of that. We took our uh, curatorial staff, Tom Jensen and group, they put things online uh, that we had talked about doing, but had never done. So in conjunction with that, we developed all our return to the workplace protocols in conjunction with our other buildings. Uh, and we've got about a 40 page document of our reopening plan and everything that we do differently now from electrostatic wipes that we use. We did a deep clean of the facility. You know, we've got all the basic social distancing signs up, you know, put up sneeze guards, all those things. And we, we've been ready to be reopened uh, by the middle to latter part of June. Uh, with all those protocols. So you've got the parallel path of working remotely on any part of the business unit, uh, preparing for reopening and that the marketing plan that we have, that we're ready to pull the trigger on that and everything that goes along with it. And then uh, coupled with that, uh, all the protocols to be able to reopen. Uh, and now in North Carolina, uh, we're in what's called phase three. Uh, in that entertainment venue museums that currently uh, were scheduled for September the 12th. You know, there have been a right. couple of different delays because uh, the, the state governor and state DHHS, you know, the trends have not been that well, uh, that good. So, you know, we've also started participating with a, uh, a consortium of museums of, you know, how we can, help that process along. Right. You know, we're right up on that process. Uh, so, you know, we've been working a lot of different fronts. Uh, fortunately, the CRVA, the, par the parent company, uh, had built up a good reserve. You know, we, we ex the rainy day fund, we didn't have a pandemic fund. Yeah. The rainy day fund has certainly been able to, to get us through this right. uh, from that perspective, from just the business standpoint. Uh, you know, and, and just got a great group of team that are still dedicated. We, you know, we've got people that are working back in the building uh, now from our AV team, most of our operations team, because we've got the protocols, but then probably at least two thirds of our staff still working remotely. Well, I'll be excited the day it opens back up. Uh, talking to Winston Kelly, Executive Director of the Hall of Fame, Voice of MRN. So you mentioned a couple of things there. You mentioned, you know, parallels and, and a couple different items. And I think that's what makes this conversation is so exciting for me is, is, you know, we've talked a lot about the Hall of Fame, but that's your midweek job. Your weekend job for 34 years has been calling action for MRN from Pitt Road. And I was reading somewhere, I want to make sure this is accurate. I don't want to spread rumors. This is it. 2020, that's the final year, full-time on Pitt Road. Final full-time. I have said if they want me to fill in some here or there, I actually would like to do a couple of three races a year. Uh, but after 34 years of, you know, spending, it's not seven days a week, every week, uh, because we don't do all the races, but I want to, whatever's left in my career, I want to focus on the NASCAR Hall of Fame. And while, you know, one of our announcers asked me a number of years ago, and my exhibits director was sitting beside me, said, who runs the Hall of Fame when you're not there? Kevin said, I couldn't wait to hear this answer. <laughs> I said, the same people that run it when I am there. You know, I don't open the door. I don't sell the tickets and all that. We got a great staff. But there are times when I'm going off to the track where I feel like this weekend I need to be here right. to support the team, not do the work. 
But when we developed the home, actually when they offered me the job, uh, my boss at that time and somebody from NASCAR who was with them at that time said, it's your decision whether you keep doing MRN, but we think it could be beneficial. And it did help open some doors for the Hall of Fame and continue the dialogue with, you know, whether it's crew chiefs like yourself or, you know, drivers and, and that. And, and we've got a great staff that now has tremendous relationships within the industry, whether it's Tom or Kevin or Wendy Belt, people like that. Uh, so I don't need to go. I'll still go eight, 10, 12 times a year for the Hall of Fame. Just, right. you know, when we're beyond this pandemic, uh, I feel like that's important. But, uh, you know, it's, you just kind of know it's time. You know, there, it was, you know, you went through the same thing. Yeah. You know, you got a great offer. It was time. And it's just time uh, to focus just on the Hall of Fame for what I've got left in my working career. 34 years. So I'm not going to ask you for one memory or your favorite because there's no way in 34 years there's one. But you must have had just some, some once-in-a-lifetime interviews, conversations on air, off air. How about, maybe not an interview, but how about a personality? How about a person that you just remember through your 34 years? This person was either the toughest guy to interview, because I, I have a few of those, right? I can't get them to talk. I'm like, I don't know what to say to get this guy to, to open up or the easiest interview. Like, take me, take me behind the curtain a little bit. i tell you the one that, that people probably don't understand. There's a lot of people don't understand, but Dale Earnhardt is one that I think people don't understand. And I learned something about Dale after several of the Daytona 500 pre and post race. Dale hated to lose. Worse than anything, Dale hated to get beat. Didn't happen that much. If Dale lost and it was outside of his control, he really wasn't that bad. If he got beat, case in point, 1990, 1991, 1993, Daytona 500. He cuts the tire after leading 155 laps. Derek Coke wins the race. It's a long story. He could not have been nicer. Right, right. You know, right. his PR guy came running up, leave him alone and all that. He's, you know, how he sat in the car. You know, yeah. he's, you know, he sat in the car. He said, tell Winston I'll talk to him whenever he's ready. Gets out of the car. We're in victory lane. He said, you ready to talk? I said, yeah, we're talking to Derek in victory lane. He said, Derek, he said, I'm the story today. And then he gives me that big grin. You know, he's not being arrogant. He's right. Yes. I'm the story. And then there's, there's media that's coming up. You know, they pulled the car uh, into the garage area, those old garage stalls, and they start getting closer and closer. And he says, you know, hey, guys, y'all stand, y'all just stand right there. As soon as I get through talking to Winston, I'll go over there and talk to every one of you. The NASCAR officials need to get to the car. He could not have been better. Right. 91, he and Davey got into an accident, I believe it was either on the last or next to the last lap. They're sitting there talking and, you know, hand motions and all that. He's fine. 93, he loses to Dale Jarrett. And it didn't help that Jeff Bonine helped push DJ by him, and Dale didn't care a whole lot for Jeff. Got him at the gas pump, asked him two questions, got four words. Right. All he said was got beat. And it, it dawned on me then that, you know, losing was one thing. If he couldn't do anything about it, getting beat was different. 
and and all of them have that kind of personality you know in different ways so that's one you know and and you know dale jr is just one of my favorite people period you know and there, there's so many different times that i've talked to him uh in victory lane or somewhere else i remember phoenix he won a race he could not have been more excited but you know don't know what caused it when uh when he won in the Xfinity, what was in the nationwide car in the car painted just like this Wrangler car yeah. on his dad's induction. It was almost like relief, but he had tears. And he was so excited because he wanted his dad to be proud of him as much as anything. And he knew his dad was looking down and proud of him. You know, that one, that was a special interview. And I got to him. I didn't mean to. But during the commercial break before they came down to him, Barney Hall says, tell him his dad would be proud. Right. And so after I talked from, about the race, yeah. I said, Dale, Barney Hall said to tell you, your dad would be proud. He started to get choked up and kind of pivoted and started talking about Barney and how much he had. And I didn't mean to choke him up, but because Barney Hall said it and how much respect Dale has for, for Barney and his dad, you know, there's, there's a lot of those memories, but those are two that stick out. So I'll tell you, this is going to sound crazy, but the thing I like most about TV is I'm a race fan. And for 20 years on a team and on top of the pit box, you can't be a fan. You know, I watched this race so singularly through one car. And if the car was leading, then I saw the race get won. But if we were running 12th that day, then I saw the battle for a top 10. That was the race I saw. So I have this blank couple decades of races that, you know, now fortunately I work for Jeff Gordon. So I got to see a lot of races and, and, <laughs> and uh, was teammate to Jimmy Johnson. So we got to see a lot of seconds because we ran second to Jimmy a lot. Um, but my biggest thing for TV that I love the most is I get to sit up in the booth and truly watch a race. I get to be a fan, you know, the whole time. So I guess that's my question to you, right? So you not only have done this for 34 years, but the majority of which, has been down in the trenches on pit road. Um, you know, do you, if you have a chance to watch a race from the stands or from the tower, you know, do you take that chance or is pit road your home? Is that the only place you'd like to watch from? No, I like to watch one, either watching TV or going to some races uh, and, and, and looking at it from that standpoint. But what I find myself doing is what I like so much about pit road are the different strategies. You know, so I'd come pick your brain. What are the options? You know, you can't sit here and say, I'm going to do A, B, C, and D, but you can say, these are the things I'm going to be thinking about because mm -hmm. the answer that I learned from, you know, guys like yourself, Todd Gordon, others, your decisions are circumstantial. And you know, by the time a pit stop happens, you're thinking of every circumstance between now and the next pit stop you know, and probably in five lap increments, if I've got it right, you know, so what happens in the next five laps, the next five laps, what am I going to do? And you might be working the race backwards, you know, it depends on, and I get into that mode because I love the different strategies, the different circumstances, whether it's road courses or this past Saturday night, you know, I watch it from that perspective. I do watch the competition, but it's what are they going to do next to get them to that end result? And, and stage points have added so much to it. You know, you might be working back from the stage or you might not care about the stage. You know, Ryan Newman, I knew going in this week, 
wasn't going to care. He's going to ride in the back. That's what he's always done. He didn't need stage points. Right. He needed a trophy. I, but I also had William and, and Jimmy in my pit area kind of figured what they were going to do. So what were the other guys going to do, the ones that had points, you know, where were they going to go? Uh, and when, you know, I think Kevin Harvick, after he had to bail out because he had the, the uh, something on his, uh, had the debris on his, his uh, uh, grill, yep. so he comes on the radio and says, may as well hang back here for a while. Why get in the middle of the mess? He didn't need those points. Right, right, right. No, I tell myself the magic question, this is what I tell everyone, they don't believe me, but the magic question for a crew chief is, and I used to ask myself this, if not every lap, every three or four or five laps, as you mentioned, if the caution comes out now, what do I do? What does the leader do? And what does my competition do? Because what people don't understand about pit strategy is it is not single thread. I can make the same decision two days in a row with the same exact parameters. And depending on what the other 39, you know, masterminds up there decide to do, that makes my decision good or bad. It's, so it's not just understanding the math. It's a little psychology. Like I know if I'm going up against Chad Canals, he's a four-tire guy. And if I'm going up against Paul Wolf, he's going to run this thing long. And I, like, you kind of get the signatures of each crew chief. And, and where are you running in relation to them? You know, I, I remember because I, I got to talk to Todd Gordon before the All-Star race, and we talked about when he might, if he might skip pitting one of the stages. You remember mm -hmm. he stayed out, at, but and nobody else did. Right. So I couldn't wait to ask him either the next weekend or next time I saw him. I said, okay, my guess is you expected a few more to stay out at least one or two more to stay out that had given you that buffer that was really what made the difference in Chase winning. And he said, yeah, you know, and sometimes you make those calls because he was running, I believe, second at the time. He thought, you know, a couple more would stay out and that right. give him a buffer. Yep. You know, and, and I love that part of the sport. And, you know, sometimes it works out. There was one I remember, and, and this was another one with Todd that, he came in at Watkins Glen on lap 47, and, you know, it's 30, 30, and 90. Yeah, right. The heck are you coming in on lap 47 for and giving up all that track position? Well, long story short, when it cycled back around and when, when the caution came out in 62, he took a few seconds of fuel, he comes out. Yep. And one, because Rodney and, uh, and Kevin tried to stretch it from lap like 51 or two. Yeah. But so that he, he did that cycling and, and it's those situations that make me look at all those different scenarios. So, you know, I don't remember all of them, but some like that stand down. It's like, so what did they do that I need to remember next time? Right. Oh yeah. 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 This is, this, I got this out of my disc. I'm going to show you this. Cause this is my, uh, this is what I tell everybody. This is what I ask most of the time right here. <laughs> I sh I'm showing him a, a magic eight ball. You're listening to Latardo location, Winston Kelly. Executive Director of the NASCAR Hall of Fame. Uh, you probably know him not only as that, but as the voice of MRN from Pit Road for so many years. But yeah, my Magic 8 Ball right here, this thing here has as good a luck sometimes getting pit strategy right as any good calculator or fancy program. So Winston, we talked about the Hall. We talked about MRN. You just let me know that this is indeed your last final year at MRN. Love to do some more races. I realize some of that time will be taken up by the Hall. Uh, but not all of it, right? You, 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 you've had an amazing career. You've put so many years uh, in for the sport. 
So what, it, what are you going to do when it's not the sports time? I know you ride motorcycles. Like, what are you going to fill your time with? I know you're smart enough not to take up golf now. So, so what do you, what, what's going to be your uh, away time that isn't racing related? Well, I like to go to the mountains, uh, in particular Blowing Rock. Uh, got a little place up there, and uh, it, it gives me a getaway. Uh, my girlfriend has a uh, three-year-old and a one-year-old, three-year-old granddaughter and one-year-old grandson, and uh, they're special. <laughs> That's amazing. They're they're special, and the one-year-old is just getting just getting walking and all, uh, but the three-year-old knows that I can't tell her no unless she's going to hurt herself. <laughs> she can play me like a fiddle. Uh, so they're a lot of fun and doing stuff uh, with her and their family and, and, and reconnecting with some folks, you know, whether it's with Duke or, you know, my younger brother, uh, you know, uh, hopefully can get back on the road. He's drummer for Hank Williams Jr. He got the talent in the family. Uh, <laughs> and my older brother got the, uh, got the brains. But, you know, being able to go see Lee play different places, you know, get on the motorcycle a little bit. Uh, but I hope to be at the hall for another little while and just have some weekends. But, uh, you know, mountains, motorcycle, uh, spending time with the grandkids uh, and, and reconnecting with some friends that I hadn't been able to see in a while. Well, you've earned every one of those Saturdays that I hope you kick your feet up with a cold beverage and enjoy yourself. Winston, I want to thank you for joining me. And thank you. You may not know this, but when I took this transition to TV, I had a list. You were on that list of people that I, I had NBC pull tapes for, I listened to. I listened to how you reported and what you said and how you delivered it. I never wanted to be like anyone else. I learned that with crew chiefing. I couldn't be Ray. I couldn't be Robbie. I just had to be me. But I learned from all of them. I think what you've done for the sport is outstanding. Your work ethic second to none, and it shows in your delivery on the air. I appreciate your time today. I've learned a lot about you. I can't wait for the hall to get back open. Uh, I know Glory Road has changed a little bit since the last time I was there. Dale Jr. helped, uh, I think, put one together. I can't wait to get down there and check it all out. Uh, it's been a blast. Great, great conversation. Well, thanks for having me on. And back at you, I appreciate all the years that you allowed me and us to be the conduit of information. That's how we look at it. We're the conduit of information. And it's people like you that while you can't tell all your secrets, you know, if you show us the breadcrumbs, we can help explain what fans should look for and then what happened. So appreciate that and the great job that you guys do on NBC and that you do uh, in that analysis of here's what he was thinking and why that I still learn every single time I listen to you guys. Well, it's been a blast. You've listened to another episode of LaTarte on location. As always, you can get this podcast anywhere you get your podcasts. And remember to review, rate, and subscribe. Thanks again.